Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is musician Nick Aguilar. Hailing from San Pedro, California, he's a dedicated musician for the last 16 years and has been playing drums around the greater Los Angeles area for about 10 of them. He's currently the drummer for LA-based psych punk group Frankie and the Witch Fingers, but also plays for the San Pedro-based death rock hardcore punk outfit Slaughterhouse, and in the past has toured with the mighty Mike Watt. In addition to his love of drumming, Nick is currently the resident DJ of the monthly soul, funk, and Latin club, The Good Foot, at Alex's Bar in Long Beach, California, where he specializes in vintage soul, funk, garage, African, and Latin sounds. You can catch him every third Friday whenever he isn't on tour. It is my pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Nick Aguilar. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, I wanted to ask you about San Pedro. Was that where you were born or did you grow up there? Or? Yeah, so I'm born and raised San Pedro. Um, been here my entire life. Obviously, I've traveled a lot in the last few years, but I, my home base has always been San Pedro, California. To me, it was mythological. Minutemen were such an important band to me, but I had never heard of the city. I, I think besides R.A.M. being associated with Athens, I feel like Minutemen were right in line with total pride of their city and putting San Pedro on the map and it had a real mystique to it but I was curious to see what you thought of it in terms of its musical context in terms of how people see it and how you see it well San Pedro has always been kind of bit of a a little bit of a weird town musically in my opinion when you really zoom out and my apologies here if I talk slow because I kind of want to like be careful with my words here not because I'm going to say anything bad but because I want to explain myself sure uh, thoroughly and everything too. You know, I grew up loving music at a very young age because of my dad. And my dad went to San Pedro High, graduated class of 76, same year as the Minutemen graduated. They were all in the same, uh, like if you open up my dad's yearbook, you can see all of them in there. I'll show you later when we're done. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, music was always very popular in the 70s and in San Pedro and, you know, Bands like Foghat would come and Zeppelin and you sell out the forum and it's, you know, and that's music. That's what music was. And that's what people like when, when people thought of like playing in bands, you know, that's what people thought of specifically. I feel like in San Pedro and Watt kind of talks about this a lot in the documentary, you know, Minutemen were kind of like the first, I, I think like one of the first bands to really like get out there and show that music is, you don't have to be like this big rock star guy to do music, you know, then that's the cool thing of the way they got into punk rock and everything. It's like, is you can do right in your own backyard. But I would say that culturally San Pedro hasn't really been a, I would say that people generally here love music and, but at the same time too, it, I feel like it's the younger people like me who are kind of learning more like what's up there. And, you know, cause there's a lot of, I don't know, like for an example, like there's something called Music by the Sea every Sunday. Not every Sunday, but it's every Sunday in July. All the bands that play are just kind of like 
cover bands of just like, you know, classic rock songs and stuff like that. And, you know, it packs out. There's always at least like two to 3,000 people there from usually all from San Pedro who show up and, you know, dance and, you know, listen to anything from Jethro Tull to Carlos Santana featuring Rob Thomas. But like <laughs> on an underground level, San Pedro definitely has a lot of cool things. I would say that the Miniman definitely jump started that for sure. And then throughout the 80s with SST Records and with Todd Congelier of Recess Records. And I know you played the Sardine, so you're familiar with that now. Um, yeah, that was amazing. I, you know, what was interesting about the Sardine was, first of all, it was packed. You know, yeah. like people came out, like they were excited. But I also didn't know, this is how naive I am about geography, more than one person came up to the merch table and was like, San Pedro is not a town. It's just like we are part of L.A. It's, yeah. it's part of L.A., correct? Yeah, it is. They were like making distinctions where I was like, hey, it's really great to be in San Pedro. You know, I've never been here before. Uh, you've got a really cool thing going here. It's a cool town. And people are like, town? <laughs> you just call us a town? They they had like a real pride. And it wasn't like they wanted to fight, but they definitely were like, don't forget next time you're yeah. through. It's a, <laughs> it was it's, really it's, funny. It's, it's definitely a prideful town and very blue collar and very working class. And there, it's got a lot of culture for sure too, with like Croatian culture, Mexican culture, Italian culture, that goes above and beyond for sure. But if I'm talking about as far as underground cool music goes, it's there, but it's thanks to, it's thanks to people like Mike Watt, D Boone, and people like Todd Congelier and Craig Ibarra. And Craig Ibarra is from Water Under the Bridge Records, Todd Congelier is from Recess Records. People like that who have made it also cool musically uh, for the last 20 years in this town, for sure. People like that, I definitely thank for influencing me for like where I am today. Yeah, and I think that's essential. I mean, it's funny to think about, you know, growing up in Portland, how it was so quiet in terms of, you know, we had the Wipers and Poison Idea and some things, but yeah. they didn't really tour and it was really underground and a yeah. lot of bands didn't come up here. You know, but that things were happening, you know, the same small amount of people were, were out and there was cool record stores and people to talk to. And mm -hmm. I think um, versus my friends who grew up in San Francisco or L.A. where it was just everyone came through, you know, or D.C. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. And they had, you know, just more bodies, you know, more influence. But I think, again, maybe something like the Minutemen couldn't have happened anywhere else but San Pedro. You know, man, it's a really, it's a really interesting perspective and maybe you're right. That's the thing. That's why I really, really, really enjoyed watching the documentary when I was a very young kid, just getting into the Minutemen. I, I think things happen by chance a lot of the times. And I think the Minutemen happening was a part of by chance, by, and by, you know, but almost fate, honestly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let's get into the movie a bit because there are, amazing one of the best origin stories of all of rock and roll ever just um yeah but you know the, the the film uh was made by fans of the band director tim Irwin and producer keith shiron and they discussed making a documentary about minutemen since they were in high school around 1989 it, it sounds like the two first approached mike watt about it who gave him a thumbs up 
they've also made that amazing Jawbreaker documentary too. Uh, Don't break down. Same filmmakers. That's right. Which has a very very similar feel in terms of you know somebody very close to the material, but very um, respectful to let just people tell the story. Yep. So when you saw the film, were you were you a fan of the Minutemen already? How, how old were you? Because you started playing drums really young. So I started playing drums when I was 10, but I didn't really get into punk rock until I was about 12. And that's thanks to seeing Mike Watt for the first time. I, my dad's a longshoreman, like most people in California. I mean, like most people in San Pedro are. And uh, my dad, back in the day, and I think every once in a while still works with Pete Mazich, uh, who plays Hammond B3 organ in Mike Watt and the Second Men. And when I was like 12 years old, somehow my dad and Pete started talking and Pete had another band back in the day called Johnny Angry, who named later changed their name to just the Angry. And the Angry were playing a show with Mike Watt and the Second Men. So Pete was doing double duty that night at a club at an all ages bar nightclub in Long Beach called Deep Piazzas. Still there. And my dad took me to the show basically just to see his friend's band play. Even though my dad went to high school with Mike Watt, he didn't know who he was, which is kind of the ironic thing about this whole story. So I remember I'm like 12 years old and I see my dad's friend's band play. And I, you know, I'm just like, cool. This is cool. I like music, I guess. This is weird. <laughs> and I remember like by the time Mike Watt is on, I think, Oh, yeah, it was Mike Watt and the Missing Men. It actually wasn't the second men. It was the Missing Men. So it was Tom Watson on guitar, Raw on drums, and obviously Watt on bass. And I remember I walk in like halfway through the set, and I remember they're playing Gloria Man. I don't even remember what the song I didn't, I didn't know what, even what the song was. I just remember Mike being behind, uh, you know, Raw, like how he gets like behind drummers during certain songs, and, you know, seeing the drums up front and, I was like, this is the, you know, a bunch of people up front, probably about 100 people there, maybe even less. And I'm just like, but the energy's crazy. And I'm just like 12 years old and I'm like this chubby kid, like with a big ass flannel and like I'm right up front. And I'm just like, and my dad walks in too. And he's like watching him too. And I remember my dad taking me home after. And he's like, man, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. And I was like, yeah, neither have I. I'm fucking 12 years old for Christ's sake. And, uh, <laughs> so that was like, so then I was kind of like, who the fuck is Mike? Watt? What is this? And then my dad, uh, he goes to work and uh, Pete gives him a CD of double nickels on the dime to give to me. And then that was like, that was like my first taste of like what punk rock was. And I was just like, this, I was like, I thought the punk, I thought punk rock was like Ramones and like Misfits and like, you know, right. shit like that. And I remember listening to this. Shit. I was like, man, this is fucking weird. Like this shit sounds like, dad rock almost but like you know i was i was hooked and immediately i just like wanted to learn about you know you open up the cd jewel case and then you see uh sst records and then you're like who's sonic youth who's dinosaur jr who's black flag who's the meat puppets and then eventually i think that led to me discovering the documentary on youtube or something like that and you know it was fucking it's awesome you know it literally starts off with like scenes of like where I live and I see Mike Watt in a van in his van driving around like right by my house where I was living at the time obviously the film was made and I think it was filmed in 2003 and that was filmed in 2002 and came out in 2003 but 
it was like so cool to me. And, you know, and like one of the first scenes is like Mike is walking through Point Furman Park where I just played a gig the other day, which is funny. And I'm pretty sure it was Point Furman Park. Maybe might want to fact check me on this later, but <laughs> it's crazy because it's like by fate because he's he's explaining walking through the park and D Boone as a young boy and Mike Watt as a young boy. I think they were 12, 13 when they met. You know, uh, D Boone's playing army with his friends, jumps out of a tree right in front of Mike, like by chance, trying to because he's think he's scaring one of his friends, but he's not. And he says, "You're not Eskimo." <laughs> and Mike's like, no, I'm I'm not Eskimo. I'm, I'm Mike. Eskimo was like a name of one of D Boone's friends he was playing army with. And I guess all all of his friends ditched him. So Mike and D just started hanging out that day. And D, I guess, was talking with him on his way back to his house. And he's like, hey, you want to hang out? And, he, you know, I think in the documentary he's talking about like, he's just D, D uh, Dennis D Boone is just like saying a bunch of like bits, like comedy bits and He's making Mike laugh and Mike's like, dude, this is the funniest dude ever. But apparently like he was just referencing like a George Carlin record or like a Richard Pryor record or something that he showed him at his house like minutes later or something like that. And yeah. And then from that moment on, I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. The thing that I think it really, the movie really captures is just chance and innocence. Mm -hmm. um, just no expectations, but just the pure desire to make something and not know that it'll even ever be heard. You no. know, um, yeah. you know, when I met people making music originally in the eighties, it was like that. You would just bond on one simple thing and not even know who they were or where they came from or their history, or if they're, if they're even healthy to be around, it's just, it was like, you're just stuck with them. And um, the fact that they just met at such a young age, and just develop like this kind of enjoyment and love for each other mm -hmm. before even music entered their life is is really special i think dude yeah like it's a it's a very very beautiful thing and you know that's why mike watt still to this day says when when people ask him what kind of bass player are you you know what he says i don't he says i'm d boone's i'm d boone's bass player because That's so beautiful. That's cool. because like, you know, it's, he wouldn't have started playing bass if he didn't start hanging out with D Boone, went over to his house and his mom basically forcing them to play music. Yes. Uh, you know, to stay away from, you know, whatever bad shit, just saying, keeping them out of trouble. You know? Yeah. There's that great quote where somebody, the, a neighbor says, how can you stand that racket? You know, oh, yeah. they're making, yeah, she goes, I know yeah. where my son is, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. which is, you know, I think the band ESG was a similar story. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. The mom was like, let's get equipment and I'll know where you're at and you'll have something to do. One of my favorite things about them starting to make music together, and especially since Mike Watt, he's the reason I understood what a bass guitar was. I didn't really, when I, when someone gave me my first Bells cassette, which has all the early records on one uh, SST cassette. So it was Paranoia Time and Punchline and, you know, the EPs all together. When a song starts, like Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs, you're just like, what is that sound? And you're like, I guess that's a bass. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it was so fun to see Mike in this film talk about 
I didn't know what a bass guitar looked like. You know, I'd only seen it on stage from in an arena. So I'm he was in a music guitar shop looking at it, thinking it yep. was a guitar and being like, this guitar is four strings. It's so weird. And and yeah. just somebody being like, that's a, what are you what are you looking at? He's like, this guitar is weird. He's like, that's a bass guitar. He's like, oh yeah, I know that. But he yeah. didn't you know, just so many stories like that are that make make this movie really, really special. That part I remember what I that part is just honestly every scene in that movie is ingrained in my head, but it's just so funny because I could just picture a young Mike looking at that. He's like, Oh yeah, that's a bass. He's like, Oh yeah, I know that. And he's like, But I fucking didn't know. Like, yeah, yeah. He learned in the most like accidental ways and is a legend now. It's just insane. You know, at one point Flea in the movie talks about how <laughs> Yeah they yeah. didn't even know <laughs> to be in tune with each other for two years. Someone would be like, I like my guitar strings, or I like my, my strings tight. And the other one would be like, I like mine loose, which is kind of like amazing because you imagine learning cover songs without knowing how it's tuned and just how much more work it was. So by the time they tuned, I'm sure it was like taking weights off, you know, like running with weights and taking them off. And all of a sudden they're like, this is way easier. And, and they just kind of jumped the line. People think the germs did it like bad, like, you know, but nah, like, can you imagine like, <laughs> not like, yeah, I mean, you, you've had the perfect analogy with the weights and everything. Yeah. The film is anchored with a 1985 uh, interview with the band um, and also Mike Watt driving around um, uh, San Pedro and pointing out sites like where they first met and where they first had you know their first performance uh, as the reactionaries i believe correct that's correct in 1979 that's when they formed do you know much about the reactionaries did mike talk much about them when you were playing with him um not really he did talk a little bit about martin tamburovich the original singer he died in 2003 of a really crazy flesh-eating disease like virus that Oh, that's horrible. Killed him in like hours, like literally like, like ate his cells from like the inside out. And like, is it's, it's crazy. But I do know if you have any, like, I guess, just have any questions or curiosity about the reactionaries, I do have a pretty solid knowledge about that band because eventually that was the band that led to the Minutemen, obviously. And I'm a huge Minutemen fan and almost like a historian in a certain way. So yeah, it was, it's so hard to imagine them going further with a singer and not being a three piece. Like they could have gone that way. Yeah. I mean, they already had a show with black flag and you know, the alley cats, but it's also a testament to youth to be like, I don't think we want this. Yeah. I don't think we want a singer just being adaptable and not worrying about, is this right or it's wrong? It's just like, this is what I feel like I want to do. Yeah, that was, and it became, you know, when you talk about the greatest power trios of all time, I think a lot of people who know even remotely what's up think of the Minutemen for sure. Yeah, and so as a drummer, you're 12, you know, and you're already playing drums, and I'm assuming you're playing different stuff, not Minutemen-style stuff. Yeah. Did seeing this film and having, you know, these records... Did it change your course in terms of style and in terms of how you wanted to approach thinking about drumming? Because George Hurley is singular. Yeah, dude, I'll tell you right now, like, 
listening to listening to Double Nickels in particular, and especially after watching We Jam Econo and, you know, listening to the way how George talked about basically teaching himself how to play drums. And like he said something, I remember he said something in the movie. It's just like, you know, when you don't, when you're starting out, you don't really know what you're doing and you try so hard not to suck. You kind of like <laughs> do certain like weird things that might be outlandish in certain in certain aspects, but like they end up being super unique and very influential. And yeah, man, to answer your question, 100%, like watching this film and discovering uh, the Minutemen in general totally changed my, and opened up my world to, to music, to a whole different like world of music in general. Before I was kind of only into like whatever my dad was into and mm -hmm adjacent to what my dad listened to like you know like i got into metallica and iron maiden and judas priest and shit when i was like 11 because i liked my dad liked black sabbath and deep purple you know but because of the Minutemen, you know i discovered so much stuff john coltrane uh everything basically on sst records uh i remember when i was young and after i would go see mike mike play when i was like 13 uh, I got his email because he gave it to me. And I remember I would be like, hey, who was this song by like that you played? He's like, oh, that song was called We Are Time by the pop group. So like, I don't know, what 13 year old do you know? Like who even had any idea who the pop group was? And I discovered the urinals because of that too. You know, it was like, I was like studying him. Yeah, I was, I would go to so many, I, any chance I would see Mike at a young age, I would, I would like study him and study the songs and study his drummers you know, Raul Morales, who plays in the, who plays in the Mystic Man, and Jerry Trevitich, who plays in the Second Man. Like those dudes are like by default, like are in my top five like influential drummers of all time, and George included. And George, I run into a lot in town still, and he is such a, such a such a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, it was so funny, you know, seeing the Minutemen, you know, like in this film. George just seems so different than. Mike and D Boone in terms of how he carries himself, you know, how he's performing. I mean, they were, they were a chemistry band, you know, that basically were amazing at listening to each other. They're all playing these different, amazing things that don't seem like they will come together, but they do. Um, and <clears throat> the choices are really interesting. Like um, I was listening to paranoia time and the first song is just like, it's only like 48 seconds long, but like the last nine seconds are just a D Boone guitar riff all alone. And then just bump. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. How they could just be like, I'm going to stop right now. Um, unlocking those things that psychic conversations they could have, you know, the unspoken stuff just made them stand out compared to so much uh, hardcore and punk that was going on at the time. Totally. And what's really cool specifically about that EP in general which they talk about in the documentary is that that was SST number two. I know it's incredible. That was the second release. Yeah. <laughs> like this little band, you know, I think Ian McKay says in the documentary, black flag with the little money that they had just for the sake of like, maybe expanding the label and maybe thinking of the fact that they were from Pedro was cool and they were doing something a little bit remotely different. It's like, let's put out their seven inch. It's really cool that, 
the first two releases on SSC Records are sonically different. They're almost like the complete opposite of each other when you really listen to them back and forth. No, it's not like another Black Flag sounding band or like this is we've got this, you know, SST sound. Um, it's It comes out of total left field. And as much, you know, I mean, the Greg Ginn conversation is very complicated. Yeah. Karmically, it's kind of amazing, it, you know, for him and Chuck, you know, they didn't have any money. They just were excited. And it's such an amazing EP. That, that when I got that, that just split my head open. I just thought it was, I couldn't stop listening to it. That was interesting for me to listen to as well, too, because like I had to go like backwards in the Minutemen catalog because I started with Double Nickels and I it, it was cool to kind of start over from the beginning and see like how they like progressed and like with their sound and everything. And it, obviously it's a lot more minimal, but as they as they got, you know, older and as they started playing more, the, the sound obviously expanded a lot and in certain ways. But yeah, that EP is fantastic. And Paranoid Chant is obviously, I feel like the, I don't know, the one like hardcore song on there, but it's still kind of like weird, you know? Yeah, but Paranoid Chant's interesting because I, rewatching this video, this this documentary, had kind of forgotten how much Mike, and maybe you can correct me on this, Mike wrote songs that D sang, correct? Uh, yes, yes, yes. I was kind of shocked going through the credits recently how many songs that you know he wrote for d to sing yeah yeah what what wrote i think you know it's funny i think specifically not to take away from paranoid time but i think specifically what wrote i think almost like every song on what makes a man start fires at least the music or something like that he i guess they really looked out for he i maybe i don't know Maybe I don't know why that is the case. I think Mike maybe thought that D was a better singer in a way, but why that is, I don't exactly know why, but yeah. Yeah, and George wrote quite a few songs more than I thought too. Yeah, he 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 was a, he was a great lyricist as well. Yeah. Let's talk about the lyrics a bit. Like, you know, you 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 discover them and you know, you've heard the Ramones and the Misfits and all of a sudden the Minutemen's you know, political poetry shows up in your life. For me, it was like there were certain things they were singing about that I didn't, I had to become aware about. I had to like pick up a newspaper for a change and and understand what they were singing about. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because honestly, probably no. Like looking back, probably, probably not. Um, I don't know. I remember I think my favorite song being on Paranoid Time was probably Joe McCarthy's Ghost. And I was like, I was like, who the fuck is Joe McCarthy, dude? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or even like uh, with Paranoid Chant, those lyrics specifically too. How's it start? How's it? What's the first lyric again? Uh, oh yeah, I try. Oh yeah, I try to. I try to. I try to go to work, and I, I, I keep thinking of World War Three. I try to talk to girls. I keep thinking of World War Three. Yeah, it's got goddamn six o'clock, and I don't know. It's it definitely made me realize i mean one thing's for sure they hated reagan uh but i think a lot of punk bands did at the same time too but i think they really did it in a very uh unique way compared yeah. to a lot of the other bands at the time yeah it was kind of fun to hear them talk about you know writing lyrics and also their admiration for richard Meltzer as mm -hmm. a lyricist 
and a hero and um, you know their eventual potential collaboration. You know, I know they did a little work on Buzz and Hal, um, mm-hmm. or Buzz or Hal, right? Yeah, Buzz or Hal. Um, yeah, compared to so much that was going on at the time, they just it was just poetry, and I I I didn't know it at the time. Well, you know, Mike is a really big fan of James Joyce. I didn't. Yeah, well, you know James Joyce. Yes. He, yeah. Um, I think he wrote. Well, Ulysses is the big one. Um, and Mike, I remember I bought that book on tour because it was so cheap when I was on tour with him a few years ago. And because, you know, he talks about it so much. And, you know, I don't know if you get his emails, but I think on June 16th, he sends out Happy Balloons Day every June 16th. And he was kind of talking to me, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, man. I'm not that smart. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Or maybe I'm just not that it's hard for me to it's all about stream of consciousness you would say and uh that's kind of like what double nickels is specifically too a lot of those lyrics are kind of like thinking out loud streams of streams of consciousness and a lot of he mike told me that a lot of the lyrics on that record specifically were very inspired by that book because he read it he's read it like twice i think like once when he was a a uh, when he was 20 and then again later in his 40s or something like that and he said that, like, you know, a lot of the songs on that record, direct, like World According to Nouns, Glory and Man, specifically a lot of the songs that he wrote are very inspired by that. And a lot of those lyrics are just, don't really know what they mean, but it's rad. Like, Time Monitor, Flame Child, like, I don't know. No one knows what that fucking means, man, but it's awesome. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it's so, uh, it's done with such conviction one of the greatest things in the documentary is that it's for the time a lot of uh live footage captured um from like from their early shows how they got spit on and the punks weren't really um you know they were just like the 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 audience wasn't ready for the minutemen no they were like this is not punk rock (laughs) and they were like hey it doesn't matter what you wear what you think what you do you know it's like we it's punk rock. We're punk rock, and you have to catch up. Yeah. That show that they're specifically talking about is when they were playing at the Starwood in, uh, I believe it was 1980, and they were really young, and D is, like, barely talking at all. And, yeah, there's, like, a point in yeah. the documentary on that filming where, like, Mike gets gets pissed off. He's just, like, we're playing it with two chords. Is that, like, enough for you guys spitting? And, like, you know, like... I want to hear your band. I want to hear your band. Yeah, I think he says I'm playing it with two strings. Oh, yeah. I think I'm playing with two strings. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's yeah. and and D looks pretty pissed. Yeah. Um, they just are like, here's the next one. Boom. It wasn't it wasn't easy. And it's sad too, because like I love that whole performance, man. Uh, you know, like I wa- I remember young being young and watching that. I was like, man, they were so young and I like know, they're babies. People are barely into this and like a lot of those songs weren't even recorded on record. Some of those like contained and hollering. Those were like Minutemen deep cuts. <laughs> and like, I, so I remember I would watch that all the time and just be hooked on it. And I remember I asked Mike about that scene and I think he's kind of embarrassed by it. He was like, yeah, I like, that was dumb. Like I lost my cool. Like I was young and, you know, just got angry. And I don't think, I don't even think a Mike Watt even, 
in 83 or 84 would even get that upset. But, you know, it was tough times. Punk was fucking new. You know, and they were, and they were, Punk was already weird. And they were the, like the black sheep of the already black sheep. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the pop group. Yeah. And, you know, you can go to the pop group and, it, you know, they talk about in the film, obviously an influence. But the Minutemen don't sound like the pop group. No. You know what no. I mean? They're, they're like, the you know, it's like, okay, there's some scratchy, funky guitar tone. Yeah. And there's some amazing bass stuff. But it's it's like oh REM and Big Star it's like okay whatever you know yeah. it's like they're they're influenced but it's not the same thing it's not the same thing at all and you know I just uh, again that accidental combination of the three of them I mean George comes in to replace somebody who has quit the band on their first recording because it's Devil's Music or whatever they're that's right yeah uh, Frank Tonchi I think was that drummer or something like that. It just gels. And so, you know, then, you know, right after that, you got the punchline and then what what makes a man start fire. And it's just a total run, like many bands in the 80s, like two albums a year. But this music, it blows my mind that it was so, it was 80, 81. When you think about what else was going on musically at the time, it's just so early, you know, like I was listening to like Devo and things like that that I thought were adventurous and dangerous. Oh, and it still is. But <laughs> it yeah. is, but like it in a in a totally different way than like the Minutemen were, you know. And it's just like, oh, that came out the same year as Freedom of Choice, you know. It's crazy. Um, and it sounds like nothing else on the earth. No, no not at all. Yeah. You know, the the film is great because it moves through their growth and the, you know, recording, going through the different records. The band definitely started kind of pulling away from the short stuff around, was it uh, Project Mersh, you would say? Or or maybe even uh, Buzz and Howl. Songs are getting longer. Yeah. Yeah. I think their first song over two minutes was the anchor on... What makes a man start fires? I think Mike, yeah, I think Mike actually says that in the documentary. I think he's looking at the track list. He's like, yeah, this is our first song over two minutes. And he's like, oh, wow, it's 2.30 or something like that. <laughs> so it's like his, the opus. Yeah. Yeah. He says that. He's like, oh, our opus jokingly. And then it goes into a live clip of them playing it. In fact, I'm not a bass player, but that's like one of the few songs I could play on bass because <laughs> it's so. I bought a bass guitar because of Mike Watt. That's awesome. Try and learn toadies and things. Just trying to learn his songs and and give up on things that were impossible. Yeah. But it was it was fun to you know like oh I can kind of figure out the maze a little bit and then half of it and the other half I can't you know. Well, it's interesting too because he, he talks about in the documentary too that I I think Buzzer Howell was the last uh, project that he played on where he used a pick. And then everything after that, he started using his fingers. I can't remember exactly why he started to do that change, but yeah, you could definitely hear the the difference on a lot of the obviously uh, post Buzzer How. Yeah, and it was there was such a fun band to get records in real time of like Double Nickels, just it just leveled everything. Um, I mean, it is really funny. You know, they talk about in the film. It was basically a knee-jerk response to Zen Arcade. Exactly. You know, they're like, "Who's Who came to town? We heard they have a double album. We want a double album." And so I believe that they wrote a bunch of new songs, yeah, and just slammed them in. 
it's just one of the greatest American albums of all time. It's just classic. It is, it's flawless. It's my favorite record of all time for a lot of reasons, but you know, and it's definitely been the longest album that I've liked since I was, you know, I'm 26 now. I discovered when I was 12 and do I listen to it every day or that much these days? Not so often, but whenever I have an inkling or want to feel like inspired to throw it on, I never regret it. And certain songs I love more in different times in my life. Like I remember when I was younger, I didn't really care for shit from an old notebook that much, but uh, like, I, of course I liked it, but as I'm older, it's like one of my favorite songs on that record now. And same with like World According to Nouns and sure. uh, I don't know, even the weirder ones like Take 5D, you know, it's it's fucking such a weird record, man. Like there's nothing <laughs> like who puts a fucking live cover of a Creedence song yeah. on an album? They did. Yeah, Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 40, 40, I think it's like a 45 second version of Ain't Talking About Love. Amazing. But in a way, it was like a middle finger and also like a love letter to, yeah. you know, it's like we kind of love it, but, you know, we kind of hate it at the same time. It's just yeah. like it's and, and that's how I felt about music a lot. You know, it was really it's it's hard to uh, overstate just how what a badge it was. Your the music you loved at that time was such a shield and so defined you and caused arguments and fights and those covers that they started bringing in like CCR and um, who else do they cover on? They do four covers, right? Isn't that right? I need on oh, that record on that record specifically. Yeah. There's, there's a few, yeah, they do Dr. Wu by Steely Dan. Yeah. <laughs> who I'd never heard at the time. I never heard that song. Love that version. I love their version of Dr. Wu. It's so good. <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, yeah, Ain't Talk About Love's on there. Don't Look Now by Credence is on there. You know, man, that I think I think that's it. I think that's the only okay. the, I think there's only three covers on that record. But yeah, they okay. did they did cover a lot. Yeah, because maybe I'm thinking of the tours there was a tour spiel EP that came out too, I remember that had live versions of those tracks that was on I think Reflex maybe or a New Alliance or something like that. They also do a version of Hey Lottie Mama on uh, Project Mersh, which is kind of like a traditional cover, but I think they were doing like the Steppenwolf version. Three Way Tie for Last, their last record has like six cover songs or something. <laughs> yeah. Has Bermuda by Rocky Erickson. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, I love their version of that. The the growth into Double Nickels, it, it, it just seems right and mature and like but it sounds like the Minutemen still every song is very different um when you heard project mersh or the later albums did it feel radically different to you because i mean it's still the Minutemen, and i and i love project mersh is still it's just a weird little stopgap you know of growth at the time it was kind of shocking yeah how traditional it was yeah I remember as a kid listening to all the Minutemen stuff and going throughout the discography. I remember that being like sonically different, obviously. Right. Like you would have to be deaf to not be able to tell the difference. But that didn't mean I didn't like it any less than the other stuff for sure. Um, like The Cheerleaders is a dope song. That's a great song. Yeah. Uh, King of the Hill, I remember watching the music video a bunch too as a kid. And my friend Brandon, who I'm not that close with, anymore but we're still hang and talk from time to time i remember him and i would reference that music video 
all the time at school when we were in eighth grade and stuff. <laughs> and how exactly, I, I don't remember. Of course, you know, they, they're just wanting to do whatever they want. I'm, so many bands were changing then their sound, especially the SST bands, were growing by leaps and bounds in terms of from their initial influences or their first record. Yeah, and that's the thing that has always resonated with me. Mike said that punk rock to him was not about playing, you know, simple chords or playing really fast. It was kind of, it's about letting your freak flag fly. And that's what gave them the opportunity to do that. And punk rock allowed them to kind of essentially do whatever they want until the unfortunate reason why, you know, the Minutemen stopped playing. Right. And they did that until... They did that, yeah, until the day D-Boone died, which is awesome. They just did whatever they wanted. And they were on the road to only getting bigger. Yeah, they they were basically touring with R.E.M., just got off a tour uh, when D-Boone died, and uh, they were set to do a, a really interesting-sounding project with Richard Meltzer writing lyrics. I, that would have been really fascinating to see. where the, I know that they ended Watt and Meltzer did end up working together later on. Yeah, I think Meltzer is is in We Jam Econo as well too, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's in there a lot, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and it's it. You know, I remember where I was when I found out that D Boone died. You know, I was it was it was really powerful moment. Um, I didn't know him, but one of the bands I loved the longest in my life at that point, and just uh, it was like in the base. It was a house party that Poison Idea were playing. Wow, and that's crazy. The bass player for the Oily Blood Men that John McIntyre from Tortoise was originally in. Was he there? At, was, was he there too, John? Probably, but I don't yeah. remember him being there. But Charlie came up and said, did you hear? And just such a horrible, lonely feeling because it just, it was just somebody who I felt like musically just mattered and, and just sang from the heart and was so... Um, beautiful and opinionated and emotional and that was very very it was just horrible and that feeling of oh man like they were just they were it felt like they were on to something as a as a band i just was excited to see where they were gonna go you know oh i can only imagine you being a fan at the time too you know like you, you and so many other people you know me i was I discovered them almost 25 years later of right. them not being a band anymore, you know? So when I learned that like, oh, wow, this guy's dead, it was kind of like a uh, an unfortunate thing to hear, even at, like a dude who just discovered like his 2B favorite band and the most important band is in, in, his, in his entire life. I'm talking about me, third person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the Minutemen were the one that meant the most to me out of all the SST bands. They didn't sound like anything else, and they just spoke to me. Um, and they, out of all those bands, they, even more than Black Flag or anything, they, they made it seem possible. Like, they were amazing musicians. They really, they can play. But, I don't know, for some reason, those rec records are really welcoming instead of really, um, like, oh, you can't get this. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't really feel like... I remember being a kid you know, listening to that for the first time, it didn't feel like outsider. Like, obviously it was weird, but it, it felt like accessible too. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the lyrics, a lot of it was like kind of like ironic and like tongue in cheek, kind of almost like 
funny to me. I remember like almost scoffing at a lot of the the, the names of the songs. Like you know, Bob sure. Dylan. Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs. Uh, you know, Beacon Sided Through Fog. Uh, you know, I'm looking at them right now, and I specifically remember like those those names of songs. They just sound like they sound like poetry. Like the way they're like. I think someone says in the documentary, a lot of the songs are like almost like haiku <laughs> and like, right. The songs are structured like that too. Like I, even on double nickels, one of the more, I guess, accessible quote unquote accessible records. There's still only like three choruses on that, like entire yeah. fucking record. A lot of those songs are like, just, you know, like Mike said, stream of consciousness. It's just like one part, one part, one part, one part. And I yeah. still like to write songs like that with my band and, you know, a lot of our songs on the new record, I well, not a lot of them, but like I think there's like three songs that don't even really have a chorus, and they just you know just like a straight shot, like in one of in one of our most most singles like that, you know. And I feel like that's very Minutemen inspired. Can we talk a bit about what it was like working with Mike in terms of you know his work ethic and his touring ethic is legendary. Was it a surprise? Did it seem like this is exactly how I thought it would go from just knowing? the history of the Minutemen and Firehose. So how I actually started playing with Mike is a kind of a, kind of a complicated, long convoluted story, but I'll try to give you like the short end, the short end of it. Earlier in the, earlier in this conversation, we talked about how I saw Mike for the first time. And when I, you know, I just wanted to see him again and again and again. So I saw him whenever I could. And somehow my dad and Pete started talking and Pete, thought it would be cool if I played a song with them on stage. So when I was like 12 years old, I learned the shit out of This Ain't No Picnic. <laughs> That's amazing. And I went and saw them and I saw them. There's a video on YouTube too. I, I'll send you the link so you can watch it. And I'm 12 years old and I go see Mike Watt in the second man and Jerry gets out for one st- for one song. And this is the, my first time meeting Mike. And I remember I just gave him like a little fist bump or something. And Mike didn't really know what to expect. I think he thought he, there was probably like 50 people there at this show in, at D Piazzas. And I, Mike didn't know what to expect. And I think he thought he was just kind of doing like, you know, his buddy a favor kind of thing. But honestly, dude, <laughs> no ego here. For being a fucking 12-year-old man, I nailed that song. <laughs> and I think I kind of like shocked him a little bit. And then after that show, he was like, you want to learn a couple more and do it again in like a couple, couple months? I had a different show that I'm playing. <laughs> Amazing. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And like, I learned Little Man with a Gun in His Hand and I learned Gloria Man. And I remember like, I was April of like 2010 or, yeah, April of 2010. I'm like in seventh or eighth grade and there's a crazy show going on in Pedro at this old dive bar called Harold's Place and it's some benefit show the, for like a new PA system uh, that Craig Ibarra was putting on and Mike was playing and I remember like I couldn't go in because I was 21 and I showed up with my dad and my dad was like he tipped the door guy 20 bucks to let me in so I could go in and play and I started the set and there's also a video of this and Mike's like all right we got 12 year old Nick and like yeah I play those two songs and I do my thing and get the hell out of there and yeah and I just you know, I went home and George Hurley showed up later that night and oh my God. he didn't get to see me play, but my dad showed him on the camcorder and George was like, oh yeah, you're doing that. You're doing that right kind of thing. And oh, that's so sweet. So as I got older, um, 
I would every once in a while, Mike would kind of let me on stage to play a song, but I kind of stepped away from doing it when it kind of stopped being quote unquote cute. When I turned like 15, 16, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not really going to do this anymore. I kind of, he never said like, don't do this anymore. Like it's weird. I kind of was just like, I, I kind of just want to be like a fan and appreciate it at this point. But when I was 19, uh, Jerry Trevitich of the second men, Mike Watt and the second men broke his arm and Raul, uh, his other drummer, was, had to go to a wedding in Mexico or something. So Mike called my dad and was like, because they were friends at this point now, and was like, you think big, because he calls me big man. And he was like, you think big man could do a full set? And my dad was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And then he's like, all right, okay, cool. And then like somehow, I, you know, I filled in for two gigs in like June of 2016 and, you know, did like 30 something songs with him. And, you know, both with Tom, one with Tom, Tom Watson. I filled in for a missing men one show and I filled in for the second men one show. And I think that proved to Mike that like, okay, yeah, I could do it. So in 2019, when Rawl had a baby and couldn't really be away for home for seven weeks, six and a half weeks, seven weeks, I got the call to, you know, uh, tour do that tour the dick watt tour and tour with mike and tom for the missing men and yeah uh preparing for that tour was pretty uh let's just say rigorous and a little backbreaking and a lot of like jam giving him jamming it into me like no fucking do it like this do it like this you got it like it was a lot of like you know not tough love but it kind of like harsh like positive reinforcement if i couldn't get something he'd be like you know he'd be like hey you think these songs are fucking easy or something like that I'm like no he's like well how how it's like how like you're doing them i'm like yeah you're right and it was it, it in a way like it it was very inspiring and we him and i we practiced every day for a month straight until we left for tour amazing other than my other than the day my grandma died mm -hmm. <laughs> and 10 days before we it wasn't even 10 days i think it was like six days before we left for tour it, because even if me and even if tom couldn't get together me and mike would get together because right. we lived you know we lived so close to each other you know i pick him up we go to his studio run the set just drum and bass and then go home you know there was no excuse not to take an hour out of each of our day just to meet up and do that. And that really like ingrained the songs in my muscle memory, not just for the tour, but honestly, man, if I had to go play with Mike tomorrow, I probably could. No ego talking here. Those songs that I played on that tour are ingrained into my brain, man. And doing that tour with him was crazy, man. It was 45 shows in 45 days. Some of the best shows I've ever played in my life. People said like, how did you do that? Like, how, wasn't that hard? Like, that's a crazy tour. And I'm like, yeah, man, sure. It was, it was a lot, but it was awesome because like I had a job to do every day. You know, right. I had, I had something to look forward to every day. It felt like going to work every day and I, I was healthy. I, you know, I ate good every day. I was making good money because we were playing every day. You know, Mike says, if you're not paying, you're, if you're not playing, you're paying. Right. <laughs> and that's, and that's fucking true, man. You know, and it was it was awesome, you know, and there was there was a lot of tough times on that tour um, where it was kind of funny on nights where I felt like I didn't do the best. He'd kind of be like, no, you're, you're fine, big man. You're you're tripping like, nah, that was fine. But on the nights where I felt like I did good, he was like, 
nah, you, it's like, nah, you rush that part. Like, hey, big man, you got to watch that part. I'm just like, and at one point, you know, at some, like literally a week into the tour, I literally kind of shortly realized like, yeah, I'm not going to win any conversation with this man whatsoever. <laughs> well, yeah. And, th- and that's hinted at in the documentary. I mean, D and his relationship was surprisingly volatile. Oh, dude. And he's like, and he was like that with Tom too, man. And with me, it's kind of just like, you can't get a word in. At one point, you kind of just got to just like, not tune him out, but just kind of like really take in everything that he's saying. And He's Mike Watt. He, no one else is like him. No one, man. Out of all the weirdo punk legends and even rock stars I've met in my life, Mike is still on a scale of like, one to a hundred the if i've met the weirdest rock star in the world he's at like 50 then then there's mike watt who's like at 100 like he is like unlike any other person on the planet and i've talked to i've talked to tom watson about it too you know he's played with mayo thompson from the red crayola and i was like what's that like he's like he's like nothing like playing with mike at all like wow you think mayo thompson's fucking weird (laughs) mike is fucking weird dude like that's beautiful and yeah, and that and that's and that's all with due respect too, you know. Like Mike, I Mike is self aware of how intense he is, and yeah. But that's also a reason why he's been doing it for so long and is so well respected. And yeah, you know. Yeah, he's just incredible. And whenever he's interviewed or people talk about him, I mean, he's he's beyond like a grandfather or father figure of the scene. He's just Mike Watt. I just wanted to say I saw you on that tour in Portland. Yeah. And it was, I, I cried a couple times because there were songs that I'd never heard live <laughs> before. And it it was amazing. It was such an amazing, respect is not the right word, but it was just, it was just really beautiful how everyone respected the original songs and really paid attention. You guys played like it mattered. And Mike's lived in those songs forever. And I just thought it was really beautiful how um you and tom's the guitar player correct yeah tom watson yeah just we're right there with him no yeah i'll never forget that show uh because i think it was the third or fourth fourth show of that tour because we started in santa cruz and then i think we played in sacramento and then i think we did eugene No, no 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 we did whatever it was early in the (laughs) tour and it was like it, it, it was like show number five or six and yeah, I remember that show was crazy to me because that was my first time in Mississippi Studios and I thought that venue was fucking awesome. I remember Lance Bang showing up to film it. Still want to see that footage, Lance, by the way, if you ever listen to this. It's been years, it's been years. Uh, just, so I could, just so I could yell at my own mistakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just remember, I really felt the love in that room that night. It was, it was that was the show to remember. I'll, I'll never forget that show for sure. Um, and I remember I met, I remember I met you the next day too at Eric Dayton's house where you guys did, uh, I'm not going to call it a podcast, mm-hmm. Mike's online radio show because he gets mad we call it the P word, <laughs> he says. Yeah, that was a total, I was totally honored to to just spend time with Mike. And I, I wanted to ask him questions. I was like, so what was the first time that you got the courage to go to a show? You know, And he's like, oh yeah, I mean, D were sitting on a on like the side of the road and some punk rocker walked by and was like, you should go to the show in Hollywood or something. Just, you know, innocent things where they had to get the courage up to go. Like, should we go? I don't know. You know, like, well, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. 
which I could relate to because uh, it took me three times to go to my first hardcore show. I just would stand outside and be like, they're going to tear my head off the moment I walk into this room. And then <laughs> walked in and there was like 13 people and it was fine. But but you're in my head. I built up this thing where it's like, I don't, I don't look punk at all. You know, like, yeah, they're going to they're going to murder me. Um yeah, I was really that was yeah, but it was a great show and everyone was talking about you. You know, they were just like, Who is who is this guy? You know, who's playing all these really complicated George Hurley. I'll tell you right now, I think a reason why obviously I had to work a lot for that tour and a lot of rehearsing to do for that tour. But to be honest with you, Chris, no ego here, man. No ego here. I think a big reason why a lot of those songs, at least like the the core and the chunk of them when me and Mike started practicing, you know, I went in there being like, I know these fucking songs other than like the seven songs that were like added into the set that were like some new covers to me that I had to learn. Like we covered like a blue oyster cult song. I never heard. And like a Rocky Erickson song that he kind of picked apart and did his own way. Um, you know, specifically the Minutemen stuff, I kind of already knew the meat and potatoes of a lot of that stuff because I was, you know, jamming to it and listening to it for like over 10 years of my life at that point. Um, You know? So obviously once I start jamming with Mike, I'm like, you know, I go in there being like, okay, I'll know this shit. And then like literally like a minute into the first song, he's just like, no, I gotta do it like this. Gotta do it like this. I'm like, maybe I don't know these songs as well as I do, but you know, George is one of my favorite drummers. And I think me, you know, being so passionate about drumming and, you know, getting this gig of a lifetime for me, you know, I was like, I really want to give it my all and do my thing, but stay true to the, the original feel of how those songs originally played too. And it's really funny because I remember I played a show with my old punk band, Neighborhood Brats in, 2021 kind of like when shows started to come back again at the sardine for the first big foist which was uh which is a festival that they do at the sardine obviously named after the minutemen song and i remember george's uh newer project called the wrinkling brothers played and it's like a two it's just the, a two-piece band with him and this guy named joe and they play and uh, he plays bass and george plays drums and i remember we played after and uh George, we, he, we, him and I barely talked about, you know, my band that played Neighborhood Brats, but I remember he just kind of just like taps me on the shoulder. He's like, cause he seen me play with Mike like proper at this point now. And he was, he said to me like, man, Nick, I don't, it's like, I don't know anyone who plays Minute Men songs as good as you do, man. And I was just like, and kind of just kind of like blurted it out in <laughs> conversation or something like that. And me, I don't know. I could have just helped but just sit there and just laugh because it's just like, Dude, what is my life? <laughs> you know, how many people, that's like the compliment. That's probably like the greatest compliment I could ever receive from anyone. Like my favorite drummer telling me that I play his parts better than anyone else is just insane to me, man. Like, you know, as we're like sharing a fucking Modelo together, it's, 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 it's a trip. It's a trip. It's hard to argue with him, though. I've seen you do it. It's amazing. Anybody who has not had the privilege of seeing Nick perform for any of his bands, get on it. Wrapping up here, I always like to ask, 
people a couple things. One, is there anything you feel is missing from the film at all? Like, I would have liked to know more about this or, you know, there was footage that I'd heard about that didn't really make the cut. I really like that documentary in a sense where I feel like it's a very straight shot of a lot of information and a lot of different people on a lot of different interviews, but it feels so cohesive. And I feel like it tells the story so, so well. Um, I guess it would have been nice to learn a little bit more about the aftermath of what it was like when D passed away. But maybe that's a reason why it was left out is because it was the story of the Minutemen, you know, the time when they were a band and not too much of the sad aftermath that came from it. You know, I would, have, you know, I would have liked to know a little bit more, I guess, about that and like what the, what the air was like after he passed in the scene and what it really did. I feel like the movie kind of ended almost a little abruptly when we learned that D died. And I think he says like, a, it ends with him like saying poetry and, yeah, but maybe it's also good in that regard. You know, this I think the I think they were all technically a band for five years. You know, the five years of them. Five years. I think I think that was. It. Yeah, you're right. That's that. Yeah. Huh. That is blowing my mind. I mean, obviously, I know it, but I just have never said it out loud. There's not a lot of bands other than like you know, say what you want about the Smiths. You know, they were only a band for four years and put out. A huge incredible amount of songs in just four years Minutemen put out I think I mean sonically very different and a lot shorter but you know the five years that they were a band left a mark of a lifetime there's not a lot of bands that could do that so who can only imagine what they could have done if they kept if they if they kept going and it's interesting you know they they obviously influenced a lot of people but I don't hear bands that sound like the Minutemen I just don't it's like you can't no. do that um, such a cool magic that they had. People, I feel like a lot of bands who I, you know, listen, uh, listen to them, I'm like, oh yeah, these guys like the Minutemen for sure, you know? But you, no one will ever, ever, ever sound like them. You hear a Minutemen song, you're like, yeah, this is this is the Minutemen. Yeah, within a second or two, you're like either Dee's voice or the guitar or the bass or George's drumming or it's just, you know immediately, oh, Minutemen. Yeah, those are, those are the best bands for sure. Yeah. Do you have a, Push Come to Shove, do you have a favorite record of theirs? Dude, I mean, I, I love all of them for different reasons, but it's got to be Double Nickels for sure, dude. Like, I know that's the, I know that's the, uh, you know, the consensus and that's their best record, but it, it really is, you know. Um, for, for, a, for a record that has, I think, total of 45 or 43 songs on it, you know, there really isn't a dull moment, you know. No. And it's just so influential and there's nothing else that sounds like it and, yeah, it's still a very important, not just piece of music to me, but a piece of history, you know? It is a piece of history. And I think for the American underground at the time, it was quite a statement. Yeah, and like you just said, for the American underground and music in general of the 80s, I'm glad that like it finally has like so much recognition. I think Pitchfork even put it in the top 10. Like they put, they, I think they did a 200... Uh, top 200 records of the 80s and I think Double Nickels was in the top 20 I think or something which is pretty fucking awesome man like that's cool to see you know say what you want about lists in general and whatever and say whatever the hell you want about Pitchfork but dude that's awesome and like a publication that big I think that it's even in Rolling Stone top 500 you know that's 
fucking that's fuck that's fucking awesome. Yeah, corn dogs from Pedro. Yeah, coach some, some corn dogs from Pedro in the fucking <laughs> the top five hundred records of all time. You know, it's 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 cool and it's a cool it's cool to be a a product of of that in a certain way. You know, I bet. Yeah. And my last question is, uh, we always grade the movie on a scale from one to ten. Uh, on a scale from one being the you know not good to ten being <laughs> the, the highest, uh, how many spiels on a scale from one to ten would you give this film? <laughs> uh, you know, what? just because ten feels uh, cheap, I'm gonna give it nine spiels. Nine spiels. I think I'm with you. I think I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's great. I love it, man. I love it. Thank you so much, Nick. It was really great to see you. Dude, it was great to see you. It was even better to talk with you about this, too. Sorry if I rambled a bit, but I don't know. I I get very passionate about the things I, I love. That's why I wanted to talk right. to you. I really appreciate it. And have a great tour. Thanks so much, man. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye!